everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Neighbor Science. I believe in the tradition of Neighbor Science that this is episode 5,423,242.569B. Uh, no, it's not. That's, no. It's, um, it's just X1. Oh. Yeah. Dude, you're fucking with my numbering system here. I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying my numbering system, which is... Like I like I said before, it's based on on Bitcoin's price fluctuations. I already have five different numbering systems, and I realized uh, yesterday uh, I posted the show notes for the the Bitcoin and Cockchain episode, and uh, I called it like episode seven in the show notes, but on the <laughs> site it's like episode seventeen, <laughs> and then the the file is two o seven, and. <laughs> In the notes until recently, it was X point two or th- something like that. So we're gonna we're, we're gonna get to the end of the season and have no fucking clue how many episodes we've done. Oh yeah, no, definitely not. I'll have to I'll have to do a database query to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, uh, hey everyone, I'm Peter, uh, the Middle Eastern correspondent for Neighbor Science. I am uh, Ryan, the uh, business industry expert and CEO of Neighbor Science Limited. Inc. Inc. LTD. Yeah. Uh, yeah. G, G, uh, GmbH. Whatever that one is, that German one. Oh, it, it, and it, I thought you were just randomly calling out letters there. Uh, I think that's what they actually did when they came up with that acronym. Fair enough, that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, I mean, okay, that's it's, I... it's Gesellschaft mit beschrankter Haftung. Oh, okay. That's a really normal thing to call your business. <laughs> yes, yes. Still still better than Limited Liability Corporation. <laughs> it probably just means that. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Okay, uh, so today we're going to be discussing... What are we discussing today? Uh, it's kind of a vague topic. It's like states and corporations as bureaus of the state. Ah, so basically we're, we're, we're covering how, um, the false dichotomy of state versus, uh, corporations is exactly that. It's a false, um, assumption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like the, the government and business are obviously separate in terms of their like legal, you know, definition. Well, not even that really. It's hard to meaningfully separate uh, the state and the market the way that a lot of people do, even if you call it base and superstructure like Marxists do. Because <laughs> if I remember right, the the state is considered the superstructure instead of the base which is kind of silly to me because yeah it, the, so the basically is the base so marxists know. think that that the world is built on air hooks i i don't know marxist on, ontology is extremely stupid to me all of it and no people we're not busy saying all marxists are stupid although they are a little bit stupid for believing um so vehemently <laughs> what they believe um 
God, we're you're not make stupid. So- you're just dumber than me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're gonna make so many friends on this episode. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. We're definitely gonna bring in people who don't already agree with us. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So, um, as part of today's episode, uh, first, Ryan's going to explain what he means by corporations as bureaus, because I'm fucking lost. Um, And then, um, just to back him up, I have done some research on international um, or multinational finance and uh, tax avoidance and and all of that um, in the form of looking at the, the ridiculously long... Panama and Paradise Papers that have been released in the last few years. And, I mean, even that, I'm just, I'm so fucking confused by by all of it because there's so fucking much of it. Uh, the, the, the depth of human corruption enabled by states and corporations is just, it's mind-blowing. Okay, so... Because I don't know when this episode is going to come out, um, I'm going to review some stuff. So first, because we did do an episode on uh, adhocracy and we talked about bureaucracy, we defined it there, but this episode might come out uh, like a bunch after that. I don't know what the order is going to be yet because we've recorded so many. So I'm going to uh, go over the definition of uh, bureaucracy again. Um and I'm going to use Weber's uh, characteristics. So, once again, uh, bureaucracy is characterized by hierarchical organization, a chain of command, a fixed area of activity, a rigid division of labor, regular and continuous execution of assigned tasks, all decisions and powers specified by or specified and restricted by regulations, officials with expert training in their fields, career advancement dependent on technical qualifications and qualifications evaluated by organizational rules and not individuals. Okay. Okay. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about the state. Um, I recently read Against the Grain by James C. Scott, which is a really great book. Uh, I'll put that in the show notes. Um, it's about the uh, history of early states and it revises a lot of what we thought we knew um, before and focuses heavily on Mesopotamia. Uh, So the various states that popped up in the Mesopotamian alluvium. Um, And so some of the characteristics he he demonstrated were um, states primarily arose uh, based on uh, grain agriculture. So... Uh, we we think of currently we think of states as being the first societies to use agriculture, um, and that's not really accurate because there were non-state societies that existed prior to the first states that had uh, sedentism, which means uh, unlike a hunter-gatherer society, they didn't move around um, and uh, crop planting, like basically every every technology involved in agriculture short of um, the centrality of grains as, as a crop. So they had people uh, like tilling, um, they had people plowing and weeding, um, planting, harvesting, all that stuff. 
but it was mainly focused on uh, things more like uh, tubers, uh, as in potatoes and yams and stuff like that, than mm-hmm. on grain. And the main reason that uh, grain is used in uh, state societies is because of their ease uh, in terms of bureaucratic management. So grain is very easily countable. Um, you know, it's pretty much all like th- the same size or it can be milled into powder, um, which makes it easy to measure. Um, it, uh, it all matures at the same time. So if you plant a bunch of potatoes or other crops, especially fruits, um, it's going to mature at different times. So you have to kind of harvest it over a period. Whereas for grains, um, you go and you harvest it all at once and you do it by just going out and, um, cutting all the crops. I think they call it threshing and, um, you pick it up and then, um, you, uh, separate it through winnowing and, and all that stuff. Um, so it's very countable. It all matures at the same time. That means it's very easy for a state to come and confiscate it. So if the state demands you grow a certain amount of grain and you grow it, then it can, you know, if you don't give it up willingly, it can come at harvest time, which is at a known date, um, and just take it all from you. Um, just have someone, you know, thresh it all and then carry it off. Um, it's also easy to store, so it can be, uh, stockpiled and hoarded and therefore guarded. Um, and it's, uh, very, uh, I think it's very nutritionally dense. I think that was one of the other characteristics. I can't remember. I'm not looking at, uh, notes or anything that I have. I'm just going off my memory. And so early states all revolved around grain because, as I said, it was very easy to manage uh, through a bureaucracy and through uh, military force. Um, so that was one of the characteristics. Another characteristic was systematic use of slavery. Um, so um, there was slavery prior to states. So he he wasn't saying that there was no slavery before states existed, but it wasn't uh, used in such a systematic way. Mm. Um and one of the most systematic uh, forms of slavery that were that was used by states, uh, well, two of them. One is uh, the use of war captives. So we do know correctly that uh, states were the first to carry out war on other populations. Um, and the main reason they did this was not to capture territory the way that we think of now but to capture populations um in fact usually when there was a a a war victory by a state they would actually destroy the territory that they were warring on and then take uh the population because they didn't want the population to return to where they came from and so um War captives were one of the forms, and then the other was forced resettlement. And they kind of go hand in hand because a lot of those war war captives were obviously uh, forced uh, to resettle. And so what they would do is they would just, um, you know, come with weapons and tell a population, okay, you're going to live here now. And then they would move them to where they needed to be to do work for the state. Um, Makes perfect sense if you think about it, like... 
the the land is is absolutely useless if you've got if you don't have enough people to work it right. and and so the, the, it's the much people, better to have people in like within your political territory than in some far off land that you ward on that's like going to be not so easy to manage okay another characteristic of them was that they used like longer lasting materials uh as media for writing so it was probable that non-state societies had systems of writing but um states made heavy use of them and that was because they needed to do all this accounting to manage the hierarchies that they created out of all the slaves that they captured um and so they they had very um bureaucratic systems of writing they tended to use clay tablets and things like that um as opposed to like parchment or something like that which um y- you know they say they admit that non-state societies may have had systems of writing because there's no way to know because the evidence would have rotted away essentially mm-hmm. okay so that's um that's brief. yeah very brief summary of of that book um yeah, so, I, I, I was reading the um, the summary on Goodreads, and now I want to read it. Oh yeah, it's it's really it's a very good book. I think it's very well written. Um, some parts are a little repetitive, but it kind of gets that information drilled into you. Um, so yeah, I highly recommend it. Okay, and one more thing I want to go over. Um, I've mentioned this a uh, couple times before on the show, but uh, we want to talk about the origin of money. Um, as outlined by uh, David Graeber in his uh, anthropological work, uh, Debt, The First 5,000 Years. And so uh, we want to talk about the origin of monies of exchange because we could skip over the other uses of money. Um, Mm -hmm. So monies of exchange were created by states um, in order to raise standing armies. So what they would do is they would, um, you know, seize a gold mine or you know, some other um, source of uh, material that money is made out of, that currency is made out of, rather. Um, They would, you know, put their stamp on it, um, which gives it uh, value by fiat, and then they would give it to their soldiers, and then uh, for the population that the soldiers needed to operate in, they would demand taxes from them. And so in order to pay those taxes, they would have to provision the soldiers with uh, food, shelter, and whatever else they needed or demanded. Um, so they would have to do that to get the coins in order to pay the state, or they would be punished for it. Um, so the origin of money is statecraft. Okay. Indeed. So now that we've gone over all that, um, we can start getting into the subject, uh, which is that uh, corporations today are essentially uh, bureaus of the state. So um, the first point in support of this is that all corporations are rooted in at least one state. There's no corporation that exists free of um, you know, a legal system as created by um, an existing state. In fact, in fact, um, the only way you can be established as a corporation legally applying to the state for the uh, for the paperwork to be done. Right. The, right. Yeah, yeah, you have to be sanctioned by the state. Yeah. 
there's attempts by uh, Bitcoin dorks to create um, <laughs> digital corporations, but we're going to ignore those because they're such a fringe case that it doesn't really fucking matter. So all corporations are rooted in one, in at least one state uh, by the uh, laws required to create them. In addition, all corporations use the money and currency of at least one state. So, in fact, corporations can only survive on the sustenance of the currency of a state. They have to get that money constantly in order to survive. Mm. Um, and corporations that use the money of at least two states... Uh, as in multinationals, uh, tend to operate within the boundaries of each state using the respective currencies. So, like, if a country operates in in the U.S. and China, it will use both. Uh, it will use U.S. dollars here, and it will use Chinese yuan in China. Mm. Um, many corporations also con- contract directly with the state. Um, some of the biggest ones do. I mean, most of the biggest ones do, in fact. Um, yeah, so these, if, if you want to succeed in in business um, at massive scales, you you your biggest windfall is if you get a state contract. Yeah, and it's a very stable source of income, which means um, it's very uh, easy to capitalize on because there's low risk. Yeah. Um, for the record, that's exactly why President Jacob Zuma in South Africa is so extremely hated. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's predominantly because of what has come out in the last uh, two or three years with regards to what is called state capture um, by an Indian family who basically um, went ahead and paid <coughs> Zuma to um, get into their back pocket and award them all sorts of contracts for for um, state projects and so on and so forth. They, they have literally made a mint out of South Africa, and that's, that's why there's been all the kerfuffle about Jacob Zuma. It's not like, yes, there's corruption charges and, and there's um, rape allegations and there's all sorts of other shit with, um, with him as well. But the main thing has been the issue of state capture. Hmm. Okay. Um, so corporations that contract directly with the state, um, at least in the U.S., are called prime contractors. So... Um, the government will put out what's called an RFP, which is a request for a proposal um, for some project that they want created. And corporations will bid to be the prime contractor for that project. Um, so, you know, uh, easy example is the F-35 project um, mm. that we all know and love that, you know, is so successful. Um, <laughs> the prime contractor I th- for that, I think, is Lockheed. Um, so the prime contractors are functionally state bureaus. Um, they explicitly execute the directives of government bureaucracy. They are directly funded through government appropriations. Um, and they essentially exist, uh, thanks only to the, um, the state's funding and order. Um, so the example of prime contractors 
show very, very clearly that the market is not separate from the state. Um, yeah. The market is created directly by the state um, in order to fulfill the directives of the state. Um, but so my I, free market, my free market, okay? I want my free market. <laughs> um, so I, I actually wrote here there, the prime contractors are funded at one level of indirection from the appropriations process. Um, I guess that's technically true because, yeah, because I wrote here, the, the flow of money would be congressional appropriations, um, which the money goes to the Department of Defense or Justice or State, etc. Um, prime to, and then it goes to the prime contractor, and then it goes to um, various numbers of subcontractors, and then eventually to non government contracted business so at each state sorry at each stage beyond the official government department there is some amount of money returning to the government um it, it can be zero dollars with enough tax breaks um and we can think of this as interest or return on investment in a sense uh since uh ignoring endogenous money for now all capital um comes from the government um okay although i uh i talked to professor nitsan about the, my use of capital for this um spending and i think we came to the conclusion that um it would better be called appropriations and not capital because capital is not uh capital is explicitly based on expected future value so yeah we'll say i remember that, that yeah all appropriations comes from the government um, and so appropriations in this context uh, would be uh, money that is set aside by a firm. And um, if you did, if you missed our episode on firmhood, that means the uh, organization or entity that is um, the prime mover of, of industry. So the ones that actually hire um other organizations and workers to to realize some sort of outcome um usually a product or service um so appropriations are the spending the initial spending by a firm and so in um in practical reality the government is the firm for um is the original firm for most commerce we have the the prime contractor who contracts directly with the government and there's also subcontractors and they are hired by the prime contractor so most um companies that do government work if they're not one of the big major major corporations are subcontractors and so they're hired by the likes of lockheed um and and so on uh to to produce specific parts of the project. So, um, for example, general dynamics, I think this, again, this is me guessing, so I could be wrong about this specific company, but general dynamics is hired by Lockheed to, uh, create the engine for the F 35. Um, so Lockheed has like creates the overall design and then they, they contract out the, uh, design and construction of the, of the engine, um, part of the the overall design and there are also subcontractors to the subcontractors because general dynamics might hire uh, some other company to produce the like the turbine blades or to um, 
to test the thermal characteristics of the engine. Um, yeah. yeah. There was actually a company that I was hoping that we wouldn't uh, end up working for, but that my company was possibly going to be working for. And that's the sort of thing they did. They did thermal testing of um, military um, jet engines. Um, so fortunately, we did not uh, end up doing work for them. Um, so the the subcontractors are funded at two two or more levels of indirection from the appropriations process. But again, um, their existence is tied directly to the state. And so much in the same way that there are um, subdivisions of uh, official state bureaus, um, the subcontractors are sort of subdivisions of the prime contractors who are... Mm -hmm. Uh, themselves subdivisions of government bureaus. So they're all very closely connected. Um, okay. So. Yeah, and, and look, I, um, I haven't worked for, but I have dealt with companies that exist purely to fulfill state contracts. Mm -hmm. um, where literally their entire existence depends on the state. So it's not even a case of um, the state is one of the contracts that they fulfill. They, um, they are created solely to cater to a prime contractor who um, in turn might or might not um, be solely created to fulfill the needs of the state. Um, you know, the, the, the more I think about it, the prime example, um, is the private, pr um, prison industry. Yeah, that is a very good example. I mean, they, they literally do not exist for any reason other than to fulfill contracts to the state. Yeah, they cannot exist because it would like without the sanction of the government, it would be completely illegal. Hmm. Um, you know, you can't, you can't kidnap people and put them in a box. If you try to start a private company that does that, then you're going to get arrested. <laughs> yeah. Or you're going to get massive government contracts. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think one has to come before the other. And so you have to get the government sanction before you can start putting people in a box. Um, yes. yeah. That's true. And even if, even if you're not a private prison um, you know, you can still produce supplies for public prisons. So, you know, they don't, they don't entirely provision themselves. You know, they have to have, uh, food made for them. They have to have, uh, clothing. They have to have all sorts of supplies because they're essentially their own like little cities. Mm. So there has to be companies producing some of this stuff. So even if you're not a private prison company, um, in in its entirety you can still be a, a you know a provisioner of supplies for prisons um yeah so good example thank you um so my notes are extremely disorganized i don't know i thought i did a much better job at them um <laughs> but <laughs> i should have said this earlier but uh corporations were originally created by government charter to manage government land holdings. So the first um, historical example of a corporation 
or one of the first anyway, is the Dutch East India Company. And Peter might actually know a little bit more about it than I do, but um, it was created by law um, by the Dutch government to manage their land holdings in India, which were uh, obviously a colony. So um, it was essentially a privately owned um, bureau of the government created through public charter. Yeah, they were eventually the the largest version of um, the late stages of mercantilism. Mm-hmm. The savage, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I love how you just assume that I'm going to know more about them because I uh, I am of Dutch heritage. <laughs> I didn't know if they taught more about Dutch history in no, South Africa no, or anything not- like that. No, no, we avoided it, it all to your costs. History much more directly than U.S. Uh, yeah, than no, and, and, U.S. history. Yeah, no, and and I know I was just kidding. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you got me. Uh, you racist little scamp. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so they were uh, the early corporations were very similar to government bureaus. Um, they did have some degree of independence. Um, they did uh, have stocks, if I recall correctly. So you could invest in the Dutch East India Company um, and get some stock. And um, the value of it would change based on how the company is doing. And again, this there's no way that the uh, Dutch East India Company could have survived without um, the government at its back. Because it was both managing land taken by the government and it was created through government charter um however as uh more corporations started getting created it would be completely impractical for all of them to be uh created explicitly through a government charter that the government writes so um governments therefore created created rules for how corporations can be formed rather than forming them themselves. So mm. um, today we have you know, a very complex legal code for um, how to form a corporation, um, limits on how it's allowed to behave, um, what its relation is to the government um, in, term, in terms of both um, how independent or dependent it is, um, what kind of taxes it has to pay, uh, what kind of tax breaks it can get, um, and it's, you know, obviously there's a whole uh, industry around just interpreting these laws. Um, and I think I think there's like um, 19 types of 501C organizations alone. And that's not that's uh, if I remember right, that's only nonprofit organizations. So there's nonprofits and um, for profits. Yeah. Um, so. um these like the rules and the tax breaks they sort of function as directives by the state on corporations on what what they can do and uh what they should do so a lot of these tax breaks sort of direct them toward specific uh things that the government wants from them and so other than those directives there is there is the quote the market trademark uh registered registered trademark um, which contains subcontracts and, and desires 
uh, by those paid by primary or subcontractors. So the market exists as an extension of the uh, prime and subcontractors that are uh, direct extensions of the state. So there's no meaningful separation. There's only like levels of indirection from mm. the state. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, just this is just a little side note. I do know that um, the the U.S. Uh, budget, um, the the federal budget. It, I mean, it's. I think it's last time I checked, it was something like eighty percent of it is garnered through um, personal income tax. Mm-hmm. Which, if you think about it, doesn't make a whole lot of sense considering the fact that tax revenue is usually around or just under um, 20% of the GDP. And, uh, and, and I know we don't like the GDP as an indicator of much, but yeah, if, <laughs> yeah, if we're looking at... Um, it's uh, 47% come from personal income tax, 34% from payroll tax, 9% from corporate income tax, and 9% from other taxes. Okay, so there's my problem right there. 9% compared to 49%. Yeah, 47. Um, so it's um, 81% of taxes come from employment. Okay. And then 9% come from corporate income. Okay, so we can basically then look at it all and say that the the, the state creates the market through primary um, uh, primary contractors, yeah, and then the majority of the actual market would be within the first two or three levels of of primary and and subcontractors. Mm-hmm. That would make up most of the market. Meaning that by taxing the income of the individual and and putting such a low onus on the actual um, corporations that are that are reaping the benefits of this market, I don't know. There's there, there, there's something specifically wrong there that I'm I can't quite put my finger on it. Uh, like what do you mean? I mean that. If we consider the fact that the majority of those taxpayers are middle-class um, wage slaves, for lack of a better word, working for contractors, that it, it's got nothing to do with um, your average person on the street walking into a store and buying anything. Mm-hmm. It's got to do with um, the state earning money off the backs of its own employees, essentially. I mean, yes, these are employees by proxy, but since the market is created by the state, technically speaking, the the all the employees for all those companies that are then paying the the lion's share of the of the taxes, they are indirectly working for the state. Yeah. With none yeah. of the benefits of stability that are offered by state to government employees. Right. So yeah, I think what I'm getting at here is there's 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 this disconnect. You know, I and I'm forever hearing people complain about income tax, especially within the libertarian camps. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but and, and I never actually see them push through and say, well, look, the, the corporations that are making profit off of all of this should be the ones supplying the taxes. There's yeah, this, I mean, there's that's this why, idea that all that's why taxes they're kind of a bankrupt philosophy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I think my issue here is the fact that uh, the, the, the general idea is to simply get rid of all taxes, that people can just see to everything on their own. But there's no and, – and look, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a champion of taxation or anything. Um, I just think that there's, there's a problem here with, with ideology. Where yeah, I mean, if you want markets like libertarians do, then you need to have taxes. That's what they don't yeah. understand mm. or what they refuse to understand because they have this whole uh, false history of money that's not, it's not based on any actual evidence. It's based on what they think. Um, and so with that history, uh, the role of taxes is just to steal from privately created wealth, um, you know, like uh like we said on the on the bitcoin episode um libertarians think that this the history of money is that uh traders who were bartering created money because they're just really smart guys and they figured out that barter is inefficient and it was later co-opted by the state and so likewise they think that um you know, right now, private individuals the, created the, money, and so taxes are just people uh, are just the government stealing from people to fund yeah. itself, because they don't think that, um, you know, they think governments can go insolvent. They don't think governments are the actual source of money. Okay, so essentially, what it comes down to then is this idea that um, there is no real uh, government stealing from. People, it's if they want to extend this metaphor all the way properly, it's government stealing from government to redistribute to government. Yeah, basically. I mean, considering we we pointed out that thirty four or sorry forty seven percent of taxes come from income tax, uh, you know, forty seven percent of taxes are taking from people. I don't know if I would really consider it theft in the traditional sense because um you know they wouldn't have that money to begin with were it not for uh the government in the first place because the government issues all money and um you know all money comes through uh following the government's directives it definitely is coercion um the state is coercing you to follow its directives indirectly through taxation um and more directly through uh, the contracting system, but I don't think I don't think it's theft to be asked to give back something that you got from the government. Um, okay, so in in that case, the better analogy would probably be to say that governments, um, through taxation and um, God, what's the word? I'm losing words now in my head. Appropriations. Um, yeah, through appropriations and subsidies, mm-hmm. uh, they're essentially shifting their own budget around. Yeah, exactly. In the same way, in the same way that uh, a corporation will shift its budget around, reallocate money to the marketing department or to R and D or to whatever one of its um, 
subdivisions, we're now looking at exactly the same thing, but viewing the government as the overarching corporation as such. Right. Yeah. Um, and so if this is all too abstract, or if you think this only applies to like defense contractors, because I have been using Lockheed as an example, um, let's take our favorite company, Google. Um, Google actually does contract with the government directly. Um, there's, I mean, there's actually a conspiracy theory. I don't know if it's true. I'm not going to say it's false, uh, but I'm not going to say it's true either. Um, but the conspiracy is that they are actually a CIA creation. Um, and that's because the uh, original concept for Google was created by InQtel, which is a CIA uh, business. And um, it's one of its... Uh, like it's probably second most popular product, which is Google Maps, uh, was created from Keyhole, which was another uh, CIA uh, contractor. Um, do you? It's I actually, don't know if you remember that. Do you remember Keyhole? No, I don't. No, I don't. I, and and to be honest, is the like I've avoided any and all conspiracy theories for so long now that <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm starting to get really fascinated by them again. <laughs> oh yeah, look up InQtel sometime. It's um. I mean, it's a real CIA business. That that part's not a conspiracy theory. Um, I don't know if Google is directly created by them, but um, but yeah. So, um, you know, the Google contracts with the government for um, for its satellite mapping technologies. So, okay, here's here's a good uh, figure here. Um, since 2008, Google has received $49 million in payments from contracts with federal agencies. So that's direct contracting there. Um, and that's not, you know, obviously that's not including the uh, infrastructure that Google depends on, which is a direct result of government-funded uh, projects uh, like DARPAnet, which evolved into the internet, um, and so on. So... Um, any pretty much any example of a company that you can think of that that you think is completely private um, and exists only in the market um, is going to be involved with the federal government. The bigger it is, the more likely it is to have some sort of government contract. Okay. And on top of that, we could also bring in the fact that um, these corporations lobby the government to have laws changed. Um, in their favor and this isn't like something anomalous or something that is like su should be surprising or unexpected because um like if we're going to have any regulations on an industry um like who's going to draft those regulations mm. uh, if they're, if they're going to make any amount of sense then there has to be some sort of domain-specific knowledge going into them. So you have to understand the industrial sector that they're supposed to be regulating. And so if they're going to... Um, uh, obviously, politicians are big, dumb idiots, and so they don't know shit about fuck, and so they're going to need to call in some sort of expert to uh, explain to them the, uh, the characteristics of the industry that they're trying to regulate. So who are you going to call... When you need to regulate an industry and you need an expert uh, to help explain the industry to you, you're going to call 
one of the people that work in that industry, and that's going to come inevitably from the uh, the largest companies uh, that dominate those industries. So, and this is how we end up with what has come to be known as the revolving door of Washington. Yes, exactly. Um, and so, even if you don't have this system of of directly like you know legally bribing politicians to create laws that are favorable to you, uh, which happens to be uh, as a study found one like probably the most profitable investment you can make. It pays something like. Uh, I think it was like a hundred dollars on the dollar or something like that. Like you, it's the rate of return of, of lobbying is absolutely insane. And so even which if is you don't why, have this system, Oh, go ahead. Uh, which is why uh, companies like SpaceX uh, started lobbying the day they opened for business. Yeah. Yeah. They know what they're doing. Um, yeah. So even if you don't have this system of, of open and legalized bribery, um, there's still uh, going to be uh, compelling reasons for there to be private influence into uh, the legal structure um, of of an industry. Um, okay. Yeah. So I, I think it's pretty safe to say that there is not a lot of meaningful separation between the government and the market. Um there's obviously a direct relationship. It would, I think, it would be hard to even like really name uh, what the the separation is. I think the best you could say is that they are privately managed, um, and even that is is sort of simplifying things a bit because they are managed inevitably in a way that. Uh, fulfills the, the directives of the government. So, in, indeed, yeah. So the way I the way I put it is that corporations are uh, privately created bureaus, um, or yeah, I think that's what it was, privately formed bureaus. Um, but even then, again, <laughs> they have to follow the the rules of creating a corporate charter and of incorporation. So even the formation isn't really that private. Um, so it, it, it's a really hard thing to define. Um, so as I s mentioned earlier, um, the, none of this includes endogenous money. And I don't know if I've explained what endogenous money is um, previously, but I don't, the, I don't recall the term coming up. Okay. So the simplest explanation of endogenous money is money that's not created by the government. So there was a document that was uh, released by the Bank of England, and I, I think it was 2008 or 2012 or so, um, that basically uh, kind of explained how the sausage is made uh, in banking. And what, what they essentially said was that um, contrary to how most of us think of banks as running, which is they take in deposits and then they lend out those deposits. Um, uh, what they actually do when they lend money, all they do is create a deposit entry in uh, their uh, ledger. Um, there's no, um, they don't like uh, have a, 
a corresponding um, reserve that goes along with it. Uh, the only thing that they do uh, with reserves is they have these legal mandates for how many, like how much uh, of a reserve they have to keep, and so they will um, get they will get money from certain sources in order to shore up the reserves to the legal limits. So a commercial bank will create a loan, um, which just essentially it creates money out of thin air. Um, and that's, that's the loan. And then at the end of the day, they will buy, I think they buy treasury bonds from a central bank or they, they take loans from the central bank. I, I probably should have <laughs> read up on this before we started, but um, I, I think what they do is they take, uh, they get loans from the, from the central bank um, in order to fulfill the reserve requirements. Yeah. Um, but that we, we can do an episode, uh, we can do an episode on mon modern monetary theory once I have a more solid grasp on this and, and talk about that specifically. But well, the point well, is, the point is that uh, both the central banks, the central bank and commercial banks can create money. When the central bank does it, it's called, it's just like regular government issued money. And when commercial banks do it, it's called endogenous money. So what that means is that uh, banks are sort of uh, semi-private appropriations bureaus. So, you know, the government obviously does appropriations uh, in the U.S. It does it through Congress and um, then also through its various uh, bureaucracies. Um and so like the government, a commercial bank has the power to issue currency as credit. Um, so like state money is propelled into use with taxes, bank money is propelled into use with uh, debt and interest rates. Which is interesting because um, essentially what they're then busy saying is, and obviously now we're working on the assumption that the um, endogenous money is, is specifically... Uh, shored up by central reserves um, but essentially what it comes down to then is them saying it's like if I'm selling individual cigarettes out of a packet and I'm Lucy's the only baby. one that Lucy's baby what Lucy's that's what they're called uh, oh, oh, oh no no lucky strike only um <laughs> No, that's what it's, if you're selling a single cigarette, it's called selling oh. Lucy's. Oh, a loose cigarette in South Africa. Yeah, yeah. We just call, yeah, we just call it loose, <laughs> not 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 Lucy's. We're, we're not cutesy like Americans. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so if I'm, I've got the only um, carton of cigarettes um, in an area, and no one else got transport to get out of that area. They're stuck in that area with me, and I've got all the cigarettes. And someone comes to me and they they want to buy a cigarette but i don't accept money what i accept is cigarettes so i will sell you a cigarette but you're gonna give it you, you you're gonna have to owe me one and a half cigarettes mm -hmm. so instead of that i'll give you two cigarettes you owe me three but in order for you to get those that that third cigarette you're gonna have to come and get a cigarette from me which means you're gonna owe me more cigarettes and uh, and so you're never actually generating anything. You, mm -hmm. you, you can put up the facade of generating something, but the only way that you can sustain that kind of growth paradigm is by continuously increasing 
um, the 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 amount of cigarettes that I have. Um, now, to put this back in realistic terms, since we're talking about government bonds being essentially um, based on population size and future earnings based on that population, uh, you're essentially then having to look at a situation where the only way that the government can ensure that it's going to get back the interest on the loans it puts out is by guaranteeing that there is a growth in population uh, or productivity or that um, costs are guaranteed to come down. Uh, you, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yep. And, so, and in your cigarette metaphor, it would be like, um, if you were the bank, it would be like you roll cigarettes and you grow. You can grow your own tobacco. And if you uh, don't have enough tobacco to fulfill the uh, promise promises that you've made of um, giving cigarettes to other people, you can go to the commissary and get um, tobacco at essentially zero interest rate. So they would give you tobacco and you wouldn't even owe any more than you borrowed from them. Exactly. And I other like people the are too stupid to roll cigarettes. <laughs> yes. Yes. You stupid normies. <laughs> um, I like that analogy. I think it makes things um, quickly and easily understandable. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is actually a pretty good metaphor. Um, so basically the government is saying thank you for smoking. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so we have, um, in, in our model, we have two sources of money creation and therefore, um, two sets of organizations that are, um, giving out directives for, um, how commerce and therefore industry can be organized and used. Um, and so speaking of uh, private money creation, I, I forgot to mention this. Um, there's one figure. I don't really want to s stand behind it so much, but it is interesting. Um, and it's that 97% of all money in circulation is actually endogenous money. I don't exactly know how they came across this figure. Well, um, it, uh, And I didn't write down the source like a dingus, so I can't even tell you where... It, where it's from, but I will, um, I will post it in the show notes. I think if you just Google ninety-seven percent created, you'll find it. Um, yeah, uh, the uh, it does make perfect sense if if you take into account the fact that um, the central banks do nothing but prop up uh, and and um, you know prop up the reserves of the private banks, and yeah. the private banks um, employ uh, fractional reserve. In the same way um, that central banks do, so technically speaking, like at a minimum of ninety percent of all money that exists has to exist purely as debt. So one one thing that uh, makes this interesting is the um, varying degrees of power that uh, governments versus banks have. So there's uh, you know, national um, commercial banks, and then there's uh, multinational commercial banks that often have uh, more power than than actual governments do. Um, so that's that's something that we can look at in the future. Um, 
when we're analyzing the power dynamics of um, of the market and of um, geopolitics and so on. Agreed. Um, okay. So, um, just to sort of, uh, it, it it is now at this point, it's going to seem like a tangential um, topic or maybe even a completely different topic, but I promise listeners that it is related. Uh, all okay. of these... Um, corporations, uh, whether they're um, prime contractors or subcontractors, uh, because they're so closely tied to the state, they understand how states work. That uh, They have massive law firms that are dedicated to figuring out uh, the best um, states for them to be in. Um, and this is what has eventually led to uh, the revelation of, um, first, uh, the Panama Papers, uh, which were leaked back in 2015. Um, for those of you who are not aware, the Pan- and, and I don't know how you could not be aware, uh, the Panama Papers was uh, just over 11 million documents Um uh, that was leaked, uh, which go on to detail financial and attorney-client information for more than 200,000 um, offshore entities. Uh, now, that's a broad term, but essentially what it comes down to is that's that includes corporations, it, cl- it includes individual politicians, it includes law firms. Uh, so the Paradise yeah. Papers, which came out in November last year, uh, are 13 just over 13 million um, documents that uh, relate to offshore investments that were leaked to um, German reporters uh, from the newspaper uh, uh, Süddeutsche Zeitung. Rolls right off the tongue. (laughs) You've got to love German. Um, No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) So the newspaper um, shared them with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, And subsequently, a network of more than 380 journalists um, that are a a part of the consortium have gone on to do very thorough investigations. Now, um, these these documents all encompass what has uh, come to be known as the offshore magic circle. Now, this is not this is not uh, a name given to this this for lack of a better word, this conspiracy. Um, this it's is a name adopted. Bank magic. Yeah, it's a name adopted by the corporations um, that are most highly involved with everything. Um, They're doing alchemy. Yeah, I, I mean, we're talking about companies like Applebee. Uh, we're talking about Estera. We're talking about Apple. Uh, we're talking about uh, Nike. We're talking about. Um, one of the bigger players is Glencore. Um, and then it's not just companies. Um, among the papers uh, are the financial affairs of people like Prince Charles and Queen Elizabeth. Uh, we're talking about the President of Colombia, um, U.S. Secretary of Commerce. Uh, uh, I think his name is Wilbur Ross. Um 
and 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 basically okay so basically we're looking at 1.4 terabytes of damning evidence about how money gets to move more easily across international borders than pretty much any citizen on the planet that isn't uh, a multi gazillionaire yeah okay now to be clear the individuals m- named um i'd say about 80% of them are politicians um and this to me more strikingly than anything highlights the very strong connection between the state and corporations and how corporations act as a bureau of the state in this case illegally so um because essentially what what was happening is the, the papers show how various politicians from around the world world leaders in in every continent and uh like more than half the countries around the world um own corporations multinationally they sit uh on the boards they are majority shareholders in these corporations and they then use it to um avoid and evade taxes um and one one point that i would like to make real quick is just that um just because it's illegal doesn't mean it's not state sanctioned so oh, the oh, legal yes. system is one one system of the government and it codifies rules but you know the the state and the government specifically um they do illegal shit constantly all the time um agreed you know there's a huge double standard um especially like if um if you listen to Mike Dicta, which is a new podcast um, by some lawyers, uh, leftist lawyers on Twitter, um, they have mentioned repeatedly that um, the government sort of, or the court system sort of just sides with whoever's more powerful. And the um, legal system sort of forms around whatever it is the, um, the powerful want to do. And so... Um, you know, even if some people get in trouble for this, uh, for doing this illegal stuff, um, they'll just, you know, kind of close up the loopholes or create new ones so that they can continue doing whatever it is they already wanted to do and it doesn't violate the stated rules that they have to follow. Yeah. Yeah. Or they'll okay. just get better at doing it secretly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The, uh, what's what's more frightening than the uh, Panama or Paradise Papers is what's happening now. Now that those loopholes have been identified and closed up, and yeah, yeah it's it's business as usual. Mm-hmm. Okay, but now I just very quickly want to break down some of the key findings um, of investigations into the Paradise Papers specifically. Um, some of the key findings uh, show that offshore interests and activities of more than 120 politicians and world leaders, including Cl- Queen Elizabeth. Um, and 13 advisors, major donors, and members of U.S. President Donald Trump's administration um, are they're, they're numerously mentioned throughout the papers. Um, the papers expose the tax engineering of more than 100 multinational corporations, including Apple, Nike, um, and even uh, the Botox maker, uh, Allergan, don't, don't, don't go stuff Botox in your face. You're busy helping people that uh, don't pay taxes. 
<laughs> also, uh, it's really stupid. <laughs> yes, yes, I agree. It's botulism. <laughs> okay. Um, it also reveals uh, what's been termed tax haven shopping sprees uh, by multinational companies in Africa and Asia that use shell uh, companies in Mauritius and Singapore to reduce their taxes. The reports have also uh, shined a light on secretive deals and hidden companies connected to um, Glencore, which I will get into in just uh, a moment. For those of you that don't know, Glencore is the world's largest commodity trader. Yeah, I have literally never heard of them before you mentioned them 10 minutes ago. Oh, you will just now. Um, basically, the papers provides detailed accounts of how the company's negotiations in the DRC um, led to them being able to garner valuable mineral resources. I've got a nice little the story. The DRC is the Democratic Republic of Congo, right? Correct. Okay. Uh, okay, and then um, another finding is that it provi- uh, the 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 stories that that have come out of here provide details of how owners of jets and yachts, um, including royalty and sports stars, used uh, the Isle of Man tax avoidance structures to keep making as much money as they possibly fucking could. And so that is um, where men come from, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, okay. As opposed to as opposed to the island of Lesbos where Amazonian <laughs> women come from. Okay. And regular women um where where do they come from? Oh, I'm sorry. Have you not uh, read the book? It's it's Venus. Ah, okay. That's right. Yeah, yes. no, that was before my time. Ah, you see now. You damn millennials. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wait, are you Gen X? What the fuck is Gen X? That's like uh, people who were uh, born in the 70s, I think. Late 70s, I was, early I was 80s. Born, I was born in 1982. Okay, yeah. So I think you're Gen X then. Damn. Hey, I we have two really... generations on our podcast. How about that? Woohoo! And we'll get, <laughs> we'll, we'll get a boomer on one of these days. <laughs> okay. Okay. I want to very quickly tell people about... Um, Glencore and how they're involved with this whole Panama thing. Um, It has transpired that in 2009, Glencore, uh, which is an Anglo-Swiss multinational commodity trading and mining company, they went and they loaned $45 million to an Israeli billionaire by the name of Dan Gertler. And they did this in exchange for his help with officials in the Democratic Republic of Congo in negotiations over a joint venture with state-owned um, Gessamines. Gessamines? Uh, and, and, and my French is terrible. Um, what word is it? <laughs> and, <laughs> it's Gekamines. G-E-C-A-M-I-N-E-S. Uh, I've never seen a word like that in French. Well, yeah, that's probably exactly what it is. Yeah, Um, I don't know what I don't know how C A is pronounced though. Is it the C with the sedia on it, or is it just regular C? No, the E has the sedia. I've never. I don't think I've ever seen a C A in (laughs) French. Okay, well, it it it's possible that it's just um, French Congolese then. Okay, because it's a well. Let's go with 
Let's go with Jessamine. Jessamine. Um, now, yeah, they, uh, this whole thing was with negotiating negotiations over a joint venture with state-owned Jessamines at the Katanga Copper Mine. Gertler, uh, Dan Gertler, is notorious for buying from Congolese rebels for... Uh, he, he paid $20 million for a future diamond monopoly that has supposedly since that purchase... Um, cost the country over a billion dollars in future earnings um, that that could have really helped alleviate a lot of the poverty and stuff in the DRC. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the current president, Joseph Kabila, who, for those of you who are not familiar with him, uh, he's the son of Loren Kabila. Loren Kabila sold uh, diamond rights to Gertler and then used the proceeds uh, to take power in a coup. Um, so that's just the beginning of all of this. Now, one of the Katanga board members was Glencore major shareholder Telus Mistakadis, who is a former employee whose stock options made him a billionaire in the IPO. Now, Glencore, which had effectively taken over Katanga, they agreed to vote for the joint venture. The loan document specifically provided that repayment would be owed if agreement was not reached within three months. Gertler and Glencore each have denied any kind of wrongdoing here. I mean, uh, uh, for the listeners that didn't catch the little glitch here, Glencore paid Gertler so that he could help them with a joint venture at the Katanga Copper Mine, and then voted so that the venture will go through because they controlled the Katanga Mine. This is an it, it, it's blowing my mind, and I hope it's blowing everyone else's mind. Yeah. Now, Appleby had worked for Glencore, Appleby, the legal firm, um, had worked for Glencore and its founder Mark. Rich, which I think is just brilliant. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Mark Rich. um, On major projects uh, in the past, even after his indictment in 1983. um, Now, Rich was indicted in the U.S. on federal charges of tax evasion and making controversial oil deals with Iran during the Iran hostage crisis. So, nice guy there. Um, Now, he received a presidential pardon from Bill Clinton uh, back in 2001, right on Clinton's last day in office. Um, Man, he's so woke and progressive. You know? And, and, and damn, you so missed out. His wife was almost almost there. <gasps> Hillary warned us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, a separate um, project found that Tax auditors in Burkina Faso accused Glencore subsidiary, um, a Glencore subsidiary, of deducting from its taxes fictitious payments to other Glencore subsidiaries and of selling the zinc from its mine to another Glencore company um, in unrefined form to minimize its revenue, which it publicly said in 2015 had not recovered from a 2017 downturn. 
And so why is it trying to minimize the revenue? Is it for tax avoidance purpose or yes, something else? Yes. Oh yeah, okay. no, definitely. Um, but, but, but just to be clear about this, it, <laughs> and I'm going to say that again, cause I think, uh, uh, how I'm saying it might be, um, going missing. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm cracking up laughing inside now. Um, <laughs> A Glencore subsidiary was accused of deducting from its taxes fictitious payments to other Glencore subsidiaries and of selling the zinc from its mine to another Glencore subsidiary in unreformed uh, unrefined form to minimize its revenue, which it publicly said in 2015 had not recovered from a 2017 downturn. <laughs> Okay, so not only are they minimizing their revenue uh, for tax avoidance purposes, they're also writing off these expenditures uh, to further avoid taxes, and they're doing so uh, for revenue that they lost in the future. Do I have exactly. that right? Okay. Exactly. So they're writing off tax income that doesn't even fucking exist yet. Yeah. It's It's... Boom! My mind, when I read this part of the report, I was like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> okay, so its CEO told shareholders before this that it expected um, a spike in demand, which did eventually materialize. The mine is owned by Nantu Mining, um, which is owned by Marope Inc., um, which is a Bermuda shell company set up by Appleby with directors... Uh, provided by the firm. Glencore sold Marope in April 2017, but before that, it was 100% owned by Glencore Finance, which was, according to a document from the Paradise Papers, 100% owned by Glencore Group Funding um, Limited, which is registered in the UAE, United Arab Emirates. An entity which, in turn, 100% owned by Swiss firm Glencore International AG, which itself is a wholly owned subsidiary of Glencore PLC, which is registered in Jersey. Not, not New Jersey, New York. Uh, uh, Jersey. Uh, is that in the UK? Yeah, yeah. Jersey, UK. Okay. Technically, it's, it's um, a crown dependency. It's, it's located near the coast of Normandy in France. Hmm. Okay. Um, okay. So, <laughs> we're not just talking about a shell game here. We're talking about the shell game here. It's this company owned by another company, which is owned by another company, which is owned by another company, and they're all owned by exactly the same company. It is essentially... Shifting money around so fast that in a game of three-card Monty, you're talking about 20-card Monty, and there's <laughs> never any, there, there's nothing under the card to begin with. They're all blanks, they're all queens, whatever the fuck, you don't stand a chance. Um, now, documents were also discovered discussing Glencore's desire to keep its substantial stake in Swiss Marine a secret. And that although the subsidiary's annual report showed revenues of $1.9 billion in 2014, Glencore does not mention it in its disclosures to the London Stock Exchange or any other public filing because, it said, it did not consider this a significant investment. 
Oh, two, okay, well, that's two, fine. Yeah, two billion dollars. It's pocket change. Why would I mention it to you? <laughs> uh, come on. Come on. Um... The Australian branch of Glencore has also uh, been demonstrated to have carried out some $25 billion in cross-currency interest rate swaps uh, and com complex financial instruments that um, the Australian Taxation Office suspects of being used to avoid paying taxes in Australia. Now, I, I focused on Glencore here, but in all honesty, I mean, we can also discuss Apple which did something very similar in Ireland, and this was big news at the time. Um, back in 2015, there was a lot of discussion um, about this because uh, in 2013, there was a U.S. Senate investigation, um, and Ireland, uh, basically, Ireland set it up so that there was tax incentives for corporations to buy non-tangible um, property. So intellectual property, blah, 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 blah. All of that you can uh, – the more you own, the more tax incentive will give you. To the point where Apple then went and um, at one stage had $270 billion of intangible assets uh, that just suddenly appeared in Ireland. Woo, 2015. <laughs> Ah, two hundred and seventy billion dollars in intangible assets. It's beautiful. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we could we could spend entire episodes talking about all the stuff in yeah, the Paradise yeah. Papers. Um, we, well, I, th I think this focus on on Glencore uh, was, was a good idea, and maybe we can address some of the other some of the other stuff in in future episodes. Yeah, the only reason why I'm also mentioning Apple is to highlight the fact that what happens is a country will create tax incentives for corporations to to basically come and store their money there so that they can then um, garner a reduced but still existing tax um, on that company. Mm -hmm. um, so they figure we'd rather have um, 100 million in taxes from Apple then have Apple register themselves um, in Sudan, and we don't get any of that then. So let's give them a tax break. And what companies like Apple and Glencore and all these other corporations do then is they go and they play the field. And they, they, they basically get countries to um, offer them the best deal. And whoever offers them the best deal, they go with them. And then on top of getting these massive tax breaks – they go and shill them around. They, they, they play three-card Monty with them. They create shell corporation upon shell corporation that basically hide all the income. And this cannot be done. It cannot be done without the state. Yeah. The yeah. state has to uh, – uh, uh, I mean, if, if Ireland wasn't ben benefiting from – the use of their tax incentives, they they just not have the incentive. It's as simple as that. They wouldn't offer it to a company like Apple. So yeah. Ireland has been fighting tooth and nail to keep everything kind of hush-hush and make sure that Apple stays with them. And 
this is, I think, where it ties in here, is all of this is done at the direction of the state. And so uh, one of the things that adds complexity to what we've been talking about um, is this whole um, government appropriations thing. Uh, it's, it's only true, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's still partially true, but the way that I've described it, it's only true for uh, states with a sovereign currency. And what that means is that they have control of the issuance of the currency that they trade in. So Ireland is not a country with a sovereign currency. Um, Ireland trades in pounds, which are um, they're great British pounds. And um, I think actually it might be a little bit more complex than that. Um yeah, especially because, because like there's Ireland... a bank, of, there's a bank of Scotland, and there's Scottish pounds, and yeah. there's also English pounds, and I'm assuming that there's also Irish pounds. And when I was in Scotland, and... one of the things that they repeatedly told me was that if you take your Scottish pounds back to England, um, people are going to be uh, wary of taking them. Yeah. Um, so there's actually like a, a sort of a power dynamic. Um, within the uk over the pound um and like if we take another country like uh spain or france they trade in the euro which they do not issue at all um i'm not actually sure i i want to look i was thinking about this and i want to read more into it but i'm not exactly sure who issues euros i think there's a central bank of europe that's sort of out of the hands of all of the member countries of the EU or maybe like controlled by some board formed through like a composite of, you know, the of representatives from, from those countries. But so for, um, for the government of Spain or France, they can't just issue uh, new money as government appropriations. They actually have to collect tax revenue in order to spend. Okay. So just unlike the U.S., Go ahead. Yeah, just for your information, it is the European Central Bank. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna read more about um, who controls the European Central Bank and how how that whole situation works. I think um, I think what what makes Ireland interesting is that they are fighting tooth and nail to um, get excluded from the whole Brexit thing. They want to remain with the euro. Yeah, well, they they still trade in the pound. Uh, the UK is unique in being the only uh, country, eurozone country that trades in its sovereign currency. And yeah. I'm assuming that they made that deal because they understand how sovereign currency works. Because you know they have a long history of that. They, you know, the Bank of England was the first central bank. Um, first successful central bank i think there was a uh, royal dutch bank or something like that that was created before them but it the uh bank of england essentially allowed capitalism to take over the planet um yeah um so that that would be an interesting read i think yes well we've covered a lot today 
Yeah, we covered so much that I'm a little confused <laughs> as to <laughs> everything that we've covered and not sure uh, how to end it. Um, I know I'm definitely going to cut out a couple parts because um, we're running a little long. Um, okay. um, but I think we do? can continue this this uh, topic again at a later date because um, there's there some stuff that I didn't mention that I wanted to mention. Okay, whatever you do, do not cut out what's coming after this pause. Okay, everyone, thank you very much for listening to our radio play today, where myself and Ryan both played very awkward people um, trying to discuss finance and international corporations. I hope that you feel that we were as awkward as we were trying to come across as. And um, if you if you like the style of our podcasting, where we're doing it now... Uh, Give us an extra like. Yeah, I really um, tried hard to do a sort of self-aware um, kind of characterization of someone who doesn't fully know what they're talking about and um, so often says things that are not completely correct. Um, but, you know, that's just the magic of theater. Yes. And and look, um, the, the main reason why we've done it like that today is because we we don't want people to feel like we're unapproachable. Um <laughs> Being being super geniuses from the IBI, it's uh, it's difficult, you know. We we also have have emotions and feelings. Um, that, well, I mean, you do. Well, uh, uh, Ryan, I know that you've switched on your filters um, so that so that it doesn't come through as often in in your robotic voice. But um, yeah, we're, we're we're people too, and we just want to be able to. Well, y you are. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Fucking automatons. Don't be racist. Come on, man. I, and I think you need to scale back on your on your humor settings and your sarcasm settings. Okay. Done. <laughs> uh, I can't help but think of Tars and Case from Interstellar. Best oh, yeah. <laughs> characters. Be best characters in the movie. <laughs> Uh, we got plugs to do, uh, as usual. Uh, if you like our show, um, you can follow us on Twitter at NeighborSciPod. Um, you can find us on Facebook. It's just NeighborScience, uh, Facebook.com slash NeighborScience. We have a Patreon, uh, Patreon.com slash NeighborScience. Um, I started putting up um, some outtakes um, so there's definitely going to be some stuff from this episode that you can get on there <laughs> um, if uh, you pay anything uh, like a dollar or more, um, any amount, you get those outtakes. Um, we are not quite up to doing bo full bonus episodes yet, uh, like a lot of other podcasts are. Um, but yeah, so we're we're trying to get uh, we're trying to get Peter a new mic because uh, he sounds like garbage. Sounds like a huge dumbass, you know, all the time, constantly. Like everything he says is just like blah blah blah. I sound like an idiot. Um, so once once we get him a new mic, it'll he'll sound smart again. Um. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I I was looking and I've I've got my eye on this beautiful smart mic, which is it a mic that makes you smart, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> Obviously, okay. like I don't know what else that could mean. Um, a mic. So yeah. That connects to an app and you can control through Wi-Fi. Now I want that too. <laughs> Fuck sakes, Ryan. 
Don't get smart stuff. They're all it's stupid. Smart stuff yeah. is stupid. It'll just piss me off as much <laughs> as autocorrect does. If you listen to enough, uh, as much your Kickstarter sucks as I do, uh, you'll understand fully how stupid smart things are. Um, uh, we have a website. It's postscarcitymagazine.com. It's where this podcast is hosted, and it's also where you can find the post-scarcity zine, uh, which has been going on for several years now. Only five issues out um, because it takes a lot of work to do. And um, He lies. It's actually – he's just lazy as shit. Well, that is a factor, but it also takes a lot of work. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, the podcast is there. Uh, the zine is there. Um, we have a Gmail account, uh, neighborscience at gmail.com. So if you have questions or comments, you can email us there. And we will try to respond either um, through email or on the show. We, oh, I just started a Curious Cat um, so if you follow me on Twitter, um, I'm at handle of Rye. Um, that's handle of Rye with no E, um, like my name, Ryan Salisbury. Um, so if you go on there, um, I have a curious cat. I'll, I guess I'll post it in my bio. Um, but I, I think you can just go on there and do like curious cat slash handle of Rye and you'll be able to find me. So you can ask me questions there too. Um, again, I'll answer them on the show or through the site. Um, and Peter, uh, you can follow him on Twitter at bookcheekite, B-O-O-K-C-H-E-E-K-I-T-E. Uh, I think that's it. Woohoo! I'm getting, I'm getting much worse at Twitter. Um, <laughs> so by and th- this is by Ryan's standard measurement um, because yeah, I'm more active. A lot. <laughs> When I'm more active on Twitter, I'm becoming worse at it. So, yeah. yeah. Hit me up um, on Twitter and I might actually respond. <laughs> also, uh, if you go on the Post Scarcity uh, magazine site, um, we post links to um, like the full show notes that we use. So instead of just like what's in the description, we have uh, we, we started putting Google Docs up there that have all the notes that we use. And I guess for this one, I'll um, scan my handwritten notes as well. Um, please don't use those to forge my identity. Uh, that would that would not be nice. Um, but yeah, um, but I think that's if it. If you are if you are going to use them to forge Ryan's identity, at least make him a couple of million dollars that he can then use to buy me several really awesome microphones. Yeah, just give me some kickbacks. That's all I ask. Yeah, <laughs> come on, play nice. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, we'll Th- talk thanks to you for next time. Us and hope you enjoyed the show. And we will catch you on the next one. Bye now. Bye.